Well, once upon a time, there was a frog, and this frog was very lonely, and so he went to see a fortune teller. The frog asked the fortune teller, will I ever find that someone special? And the fortune teller tells him not to worry. She says, you're going to meet a beautiful young girl, and she will want to know everything about you. And the frog is excited. He says, when will I meet her? And the fortune teller says, next semester in biology class. <laughs> Our Bible passage today is a story of how uh, one man meets a beautiful young girl. There's no frog and there's no story of fortune teller, but it's an amazing story that speaks of God's kindness and God's leading in all the normal parts of life. So why don't we pray that uh, God would teach us today from the story of Isaac and Rebecca. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we open your word today, would you teach us about the way that you provide for us and the way that you direct the circumstances of our lives? Help us to trust you with every aspect of our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, this is our final week in our sermon series from Genesis 12 to 25. For the last six weeks, we have been following the story of Abraham and the promises of God. And uh, it all began when God spoke to Abraham at the age of 75, and he called him out of the land of his ancestors, asked him to leave, and God said, go to the land that I will show you. And uh, God made three big promises to Abraham, uh, and I know you know them. It was land, nation, and blessing. God promised to give the land that we now know as Israel to Abraham and to his descendants. Uh, he promised to make Abraham into a great nation. That is, he would have so many offspring that there would be as many as if you could count the, the, the grains of sand on the seashore. Um, I was at, uh, where was I yesterday? What's the beach? One of the beaches near Point Reyes. Um, it was so foggy that you couldn't count anything. Um, you couldn't see six feet in front of you. And lastly, God promised that he would bless Abraham. Uh, he would use Abraham's offspring not only to be blessed themselves, but actually to bring blessing to the entire world. These are three foundational promises that help explain the rest of the Bible, and, and they shape a lot of what happens. And over the last six weeks, we've seen God keep those promises uh, but not always in the way that we expected. Um, Abraham and Sarah, they ended up waiting 25 years for their first child to be born. Uh, and then it takes more than 60 years for Abraham to own a part of the promised land. And then it's just a field and a cave where he lays his wife to rest as she dies. Um, the, the story of Abraham and the promises of God, it's not like Aladdin and the lamp. It's not that uh, we can ask God for, to do things for us and he just does them right away. Uh, but it doesn't mean that God is powerless to intervene in our lives. And that's what we'll see today in the story of Isaac and Rebekah. Now, as I said, this is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. You've only got a little part of it, but it's an amazing story. So let's start in verse 1, where Abraham is now very, very old. Uh, verse 1, Abraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. Um, Abraham is old enough to look back on his life, and to see all of the ways that God had blessed him. What a great attitude to have. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be like Abraham when we get older, to be able to look back on our lives and see the bumps and the hills and the valleys, but to remember the way that God has blessed us? What a wonderful little side lesson just from the beginning of our passage. See, God had blessed Abraham in every way, but there was still one thing missing, and that was a son for his wife, Isaac. Um, Isaac was almost 40 years old now, and so Abraham calls the senior servant in his house 
um, verse 2, the one who was in charge of everything that he had, and he asked the servant to make a solemn promise to go and find a wife for Isaac. Verse 3, I want you to swear by the Lord, Abraham says, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from amongst the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I'm living, but you will go to my country and my own relatives, and there you will find a wife for Isaac. Abraham wants to make sure that the servant finds Isaac a wife from among his own relatives, um, from amongst Abraham's own relatives, and not the people of Canaan. Uh, there's two issues with, Abraham, uh, with Isaac marrying a Canaanite. First, Canaan was the promised land. And if Isaac marries a Canaanite, then, well, really the land will partly belong to the descendants, but also to the Canaanites still. And second, the Canaanites represent a people who've turned their backs on God. And their religious practices particularly um, were heinous. Um, God, uh, Noah had cursed the Canaanites. And then in Genesis 15, God himself had said that he would one day judge the Canaanites for their religious practices. And the Canaanite religion included sacrificing children in the fire. Abraham didn't want his son or his descendants to be mixed up with that false god and that false worship. Not that Abraham's family of origin was much better. Um, as we've learned, Abraham came from a Middle Eastern culture that engaged in moon worship and included human sacrifice. But remember, Abraham had made a break with that historical part of himself. Um, he'd made a decisive break with his old ways when he decided to listen to God and to follow the call of, of Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Because you can't follow two opposing gods. It's called syncretism kind of having a foot in both camps. When you do that, it doesn't really make sense of either. Well, the servant is worried that it might not work out. And so what if the woman, you know, what if he travels this thousand miles and the woman's unwilling to come back with him? Um, verse 5, he asks, should I take your son there to meet her? Maybe Isaac was handsome, who knows? Verse 6, well, Abraham, he's adamant that his son must not leave the promised land. He can't leave the promised land. In fact, he says it twice in this paragraph. Abraham that knows that this land is meant for his offspring. It's promised to his offspring. And he doesn't want Isaac to ever leave it. And perhaps it's a reflection on Abraham's own wandering. You know, he'd wandered both literally and also metaphorically from God's promises over the years. You know, we do that as parents sometimes. We kind of try to keep our kids from the mistakes that we've made. We try to help them not repeat doesn't always work out, but it's a good thing to do. We'll come back to the story. Abraham is so certain that this will work out that he actually says God will send an angel before his servant so that he can get a wife for his son. I just want to reflect on this idea briefly, the idea of the angel going before the servant. Um, it doesn't say anywhere in the text, um, but maybe God had spoken to Abraham and promised that this angel would go ahead of him. But it doesn't say it anywhere, and so we don't know for certain. Um, it's not surprising to hear Abraham talk about angels. Already between chapter 16 and 21, uh, 22, there'd been four different angel stories. Angels had intervened um, on God's behalf. Uh, but as we read on in our chapter, there will be no angels. There'll be no voice of the angels. Um, no angel speaks. If there's any angelic agency at work, um, they're not the hero of the story. Um, if they're angels, that's only because God has sent them. Um, and you can see it there in verse 4. He will send his angel. And we need to remember that angels aren't to be worshipped. Um, they're just God's messengers. Uh, if God had butlers, they would be angels, I think. They're his staff. 
And when things happen, it's because God makes them happen, no matter how it happens or how it works out behind the scenes. And so we need to remember to make God the hero of the story, not anything else. Well, the servant goes in verse 10, and he takes 10 camels. They're loaded with all kinds of goods from his masters. Um, He sets out for Aram Naharam, which in the original language means the land between the two rivers. Um, It's Mesopotamia or modern-day Iraq. It's a 1,000 miles to the east of Canaan. And he arrives at this little town called Nahor. Um, You might notice later his brother is called Nahor as well. I'm assuming it's his brother's town. Well, he arrives there at dusk. He brings his camels to the well outside the town, and uh, he sits them down. And the narrator tells us in verse 11, this was the time the women go out to draw water. And so the servant, he prays, verse 12. He says, Lord God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master. See, I'm standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, this is his plot, by the way, um, he prays to God. He says, may it be when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I might have a drink. And she says, drink and I'll water your camels too. That will be the sign for him. Let her be the one that you've chosen for your son, for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you've shown your kindness to my master. The servant prays for a sign, not really a supernatural one, um, probably just a kind of normal one, a a pretty understated sign. He, He prays that he will meet a woman kind enough to give him a drink and to give a drink to his camels as well. That's really what he's praying for, isn't it? Somebody who is kind and industrious, generous. Well, the servant's prayer is answered before he even finished praying, verse 15. Before he finished praying, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder. Um, she was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah. If you go back a few chapters, we already had met her in a kind of little uh, genealogy there. Well, she's the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. Um, and the woman was very beautiful. She was very beautiful. She was a virgin. No man had ever slept with her. She went down to the spring. She filled up her jar and she came up again. And this is a cinematic moment in the Bible, if ever there was one. You know, the servant is, is praying. He opens his eyes and, wow, there she is. Um, it's not for her, by the, uh, not for him, by the way, for his master's son. But there she is, the woman of his prayers. She is movie star beautiful. The servant asks her for some water and she says, drink, my Lord. And then she adds the magic words, let me get water for your camels too. Um, <laughs> and they've had enough to drink. Can you imagine this scene? Um, You have to imagine this is, we have to understand, this is really like the Romeo and Juliet scene um, on the balcony. This is is enshrined in Jewish folklore. Everybody knows about this. Uh, We're meeting a major character in the storyline in this very memorable way. And the Bible actually goes on to repeat the motif of um, meeting your significant other at a well. Um, So Isaac and Rebecca, this is the two people who are about to get married, well, they have a son called Jacob, well, he meets his wife at exactly the same well some generation later. And then Moses will meet his wife Zipporah at a well also. Um, You may not know this, we have a well on our property here. And so if anybody's looking for a a husband or a wife, we've set up a special little table with some champagne and there's balloon ride tickets and... um... (laughs) The, The well part was true, everything else, possibly fabricated. (laughs) coming back to the story Um, Rebecca um, she carries water for the servants camels 
Um, this is no small task. I was talking about this with my family yesterday. Um, she has to go down into the well and back carrying jars of water for, for camels, 10 of them. Um, I, that's at least 10 buckets full, surely. Um, and camels drink like 25 gallons each, so it's probably 30 or 40 buckets full. Um, she was probably plastered and sweaty. And, well, she goes down time and time again into the spring. She carries jug after jug of water for the thirsty camels. And as the camels finish drinking, the servant is convinced. He's been silent the whole time just watching. And he takes out gifts. He takes out a nose ring and he takes out two very chunky gold bracelets. It's a very expensive gift. And, and he asks, whose daughter are you? And he asks if there's any room in her father's house to stay. And that's when Rebecca re reveals that she's the daughter of Bethuel, the son that Milcah bore to Nahor. In other words, Rebecca is a relative of Abraham, exactly the kind of person that he was looking for. That's who the servant had been sent to find. She is Abraham's brother's granddaughter. Is that a grandniece, maybe? Brother's granddaughter? Who even knows? But she fits all of the criteria that Abraham had wanted for a wife for his son. And uh, we wait in anticipation for what will happen next, although we kind of know because we've seen romance movies before. Rebecca's hospitality at the well, it extends to offering the servant um, a place for the night and fodder for the camels. Rebecca runs ahead to tell her family about who she'd met at the well. And um, I love this. The servant stops for a moment and he takes time to worship God. Have a look at verse 26. I think I've got it there on your page. The man bowed down and he worshipped God. He worshipped the Lord saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. Genesis 24, 26 to 27. Um, I love that the servant is able to pause in the middle of this exciting story to worship God. Um, his earlier prayers have been answered and is reminded of God's kindness. And you see that word there twice, kindness. If you look at verse 12 and 14, the servant has appealed twice to God's kindness. Um, show kindness to my master, he says. Um, this kindness, um, hesed is the word in Hebrew, it's one of God's core characteristics. Um, this is kind of loving faithfulness that's, that's spread and never changes. Um, commentator Andrew Reid, he describes this hesed kindness as overflowing and surprising and non-obligated generosity or love. It's a wonderful gift. And isn't it true, how often do surprisingly good things happen to us in our lives? You know, moments of unexpected goodness or an act of genuine generosity that we just weren't expecting. You know, when these moments happen, they're not just the universe sending you good vibes. These are God. It's not just serendipity. This is God showing you his kindness. Wouldn't it be wonderful when that happens to stop and recognize? To stop and recognize that it is God. It's him who is behind all of the wonderful things that have happened. All those little things that come together at just the right time to make your life unexpectedly wonderful at times. Well, the servant, he recognized God's kindness and he thanked God for it. Even though the kindness wasn't really for himself at all. Um, it was God's kindness to the servant's master. And we learn a lot about the servant's character in this story. In this scene, he's humbly able to enjoy his master's success. Um, if this is Eliezer of Damascus, um, about six or seven chapters earlier when Abraham had been unable to have a child, he thought 
maybe I'll give my entire inheritance to Eliezer of Damascus, his chief servant. Well, if that's that guy whom Abraham considered naming his heir, well, if it's the same man, then he's missed out on inheriting, inheriting the entire land of Canaan. And he spent his entire life, 60 more years, as a servant, not as a son. And yet, there's no sense of envy here. He's just genuinely happy for his master's sake. What a great character. Servant recognizes God's kindness. And he overflows with that same kindness and non-obligated generosity. The servant, he's been transformed by God's grace. Well, there's something else remarkable about the servant's prayer. He worships God because he recognizes that God has led him on this journey to find the right person. God has led him to find this right person in just the right place at just the right time. There was no angel. There's no shining star that he followed to Bethlehem. It's just God working through the everyday events of life, the delays, the customs, the stresses, the chance meetings. And so uh, theologian J.I. Packer, I've put the quote there on your page, he says this, he says, believers are never in the grip of blind forces. We're not, we're not subject to fortune or chance or luck or fate. He says all that happens to them is divinely planned. And each event comes as a new summons to trust, obey, and rejoice. This story is a reminder that God is at work in your life. God is at work in your life, just as he's at work in my life. God may not speak to you like he spoke to Abraham, but when we seek after God's will for our lives, God will lead us on the journey to just the right place. It takes genuine trust to believe that God has us exactly where he wants us, that we're right where God wants to put us. But I think that's how we're to understand the scripture. So I've given you two little verses down there, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Some of you will have this memorized, I'm sure. But Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And in all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. And when we submit our lives to the Lord and we trust him with all of our heart, he will lead us to right where he wants us to go. It might not be where you wanted to go, but it's where God is leading you to. And so Romans 8.28 teaches us that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. You might be in a hard season right now. I know some of you are, you've told me. You might be in the valley of the shadow of death. Trust that God is leading you into green pastures. Or you might be facing a big decision. Bring it to the Lord and pray about it. Submit yourself and your future to him and then follow the pathway that opens up before you. Is it the right one? Well, if it's not, you can trust that God will eventually bring you back to the right path, even if there are lessons for you to learn along the way. What I'm trying to say is that God works in the everyday circumstances of life to guide us and to lead us. Uh, you can trust him whatever decision you take when you put God first. And that's what Rebecca did. Um, let me quickly tell you how the story ends. The servant arrives at Rebecca's home. Her brother Laban comes out to greet the servant. Um, dun, dun, dun. If you've read on, Laban's a bad guy. Um, Laban, he puts on this show of hospitality. It's a little bit fake. Laban, he's going to play a major role in the next generation, in the next story. Uh, as I said, you're going to have to wait until next year for that season to get released. But a little preview. Uh, we get a hint about the dark side of Laban's character. All he's interested in is the nose ring and the bracelets. He sniffs the money. Hmm. His, mo his motives are not pure. However, when he hears the story of how Abraham had sent his servant all the way from Canaan, 
And they'd met Rebecca at the well, just the way that he'd prayed about. Even Laban had to admit this is from the Lord. And so in verse 50, I'm going to read it for you. Laban answers, he says, this is from the Lord. He says, we can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here is Rebecca. Take her and go. Let her become the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has directed. And they ask Rebecca, what do you want to do? And she says, I will go. Rebecca, what do you want to do? She says, I'll go with him. In the space of less than 24 hours, Rebecca makes this choice to leave behind her family and to follow the call of God, just like Abraham had done all of those years earlier. Rebecca returns to Canaan with a servant. She meets Isaac. They get married the same day. Abraham dies at the age of 175 with his family gathered around him. One chapter is closed and the next chapter with Isaac and Rebecca is about to begin and we'll pick it up next year. Well, as we finish this series about Abraham and the promises of God, I want to challenge you to consider, are you following the call of God in your life? Are you following the call of God in your life? I'm always struck by the obedience of Jesus' first disciples. Do you remember Jesus said to them, follow me? And they got up and they followed him. The fishermen left everything behind to follow him. Often, without all of the information, Jesus says, follow, and they do. They don't know where they're going, they just follow. Because it's Jesus, they hear the call and they follow. You know, Jesus is still saying the same thing to us today. He says, follow me. He says, entrust your life to me. And I'm going to bring you into all the fullness of the promised land. I'm going to make you into, I'm going to bring you into a place where you'll live forever. I'm going to make you into one of my children. And he says, I'm going to bring you blessing that you couldn't imagine. Blessing you couldn't imagine when you follow Jesus. So if you hear God calling you today, if you hear God calling your name, how will you respond? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful story of your servants from so long ago. Father, may we have the same faith to hear your voice and to follow. Help us to follow Jesus this day and every day as you lead us into the promised land, your heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem, where we'll be blessed forever and ever, where there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Father, help us to trust this promise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.